There's a story of a little boy on a plane, and he was sitting next to a, a lady on the plane, and the plane took off and got to cruising altitude, and soon after they got to cruising altitude, uh, there was a lot of turbulence, in the, and the plane was going up and down and left to right. You like the left to right? That one really gets me. I really have a problem with that one. But the little boy, the, the woman was freaked out. She got her little airbag, and she was blowing in it, and she was nervous and afraid, and she looks over, and this little boy looks like he's on a roller coaster. He's got his hands up in the air, and he's swaying up and down and left and right and making noise, and he's excited about it. He's having fun with it. And after about five minutes of that, the turbulence continued left, right, up, down. And the lady finally had had enough, and she said, would you please just stop it? What are you doing? Don't you see what's going on? And the boy put his hands down, and he turned to the lady, and he put his hand on the lady, and he said, listen, ma'am, my dad's the pilot. You're going to be okay. Let me ask you, C3, when turbulence comes your way, and life is taking you to the left and to the right and up and down, and you don't know up from down and left from right, and trials and tribulations come into your life, where do you turn? How do you respond? Do you believe that there's someone flying the plane? And for many of you, you believe there's somebody flying the plane that's in control, but do you trust him in those moments? Maybe when there's loss of job, maybe when you don't know if you should continue the job that you're in and you're stuck. Maybe it's when there's a relationship in your life that is broken and you don't know where to turn. Maybe there's a health issue that's going on in your life and you don't know what's going to happen. In those times, in times of trial, in times of suffering, where do you turn when turbulence comes your way? Well, last week we looked and began the book of James and we learned that the brother of Jesus who wrote the book, his, this book, was ministering to and in a poor and persecuted church in the first century. And as we get into this book today, we're right out of the gate, what we're going to see is that we come to a passage and James deals with turbulence. He deals with circumstances that we find ourselves in, that his audience were, were in. And there's great truths for us to learn in this. And he calls his flock to live a wise and sojourning servants of Jesus in that persecution, in those trials, in those sorrows. There's much to learn today as we look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 18. Because whatever turbulence you are in, God is in control. And there's some great truths in this text to remind you, because we often forget that God is not only in control, but God is good, and he is with us through all of it. So James chapter 1, and I'm going to start in verse 2, and we'll read through verse 18, and we'll see some glorious truths to apply to our lives in the trials and the tribulations we walk through, and the temptations that we walk through, things we can remember about God. So open your Bibles to James, and we'll be in chapter 1, verses 2 through 18. So listen along or look along as I read. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives graciously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Verse 9. Then the low, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself tempts no one. Remember that, C3. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire which is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Verses 16, don't be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he be brought, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's really three sections here that we're going to deal with. We're going to deal with trials from verses 2 through verse 12. We're going to deal then with temptations that come out of testing. From verse 13 to 15 and 16 to 18, we'll look, at the, we'll look at the fact that we can be encouraged because God is good and God is gracious. So let's start with verses 2 through 12. And here's your truth that you need to remember. You need to remember that God is sovereign over our trials. He's sovereign over our trials. That means that all things are under his control, even the sufferings and the trials that you and I face. I want you to look real closely at verse 2. Verse 2 is kind of the summary. And I don't know if you've ever read James, and as a casual reading of James, you get to verse 2, and you have this summary statement, and it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. Oh, great. Thanks, James. That's not really the way I feel in my trial. Can it all joy? What does that look like? Here's the thing. This is a summary statement, and he's going to give us four reasons that you can count it all joy after it. So he's deductively helping us understand that you can count it all joy, but let me show you why. So this is what he's doing. Count, the word count there, is the idea of evaluate. Evaluation takes time. Considering takes time. It's not something that happens automatically. And so maybe if you're counseling someone and he's going through a hard time, the first thing you might not say to them is count it all joy. Maybe that's later, and I'll give you some reasons why. And then it says this, my brothers, when? Does it say, does it say if? It doesn't say if. It says when. See, the thing about suffering and trials is we live in this broken world that we will experience suffering and trials, and not only that, all the way through the Bible, you have to deal with the fact that God tests us. He tests Abraham. He tests Jacob. He tests Joseph. All the way through the Bible, you see that God tests. He tested Job. He's going to test us. He's not going to tempt us. He's going to test us. When, not if, these things will happen. Trials have come upon all of us because we live in a broken world. And there are various types of trials, but let me give you four things. Let me give you four reasons, and I'm going to give them to you up front, and then I'm going to unpack them, okay? Number one, as you look at verses three and four, trials help us grow into maturity. 
They help us grow into maturity to become more like Christ. This is the message of verse 3 and 4, verses 5 through 8. I'm just giving you a summary. We'll walk through it. He's going to show us that it makes us dependent on him in prayer for wisdom that we learn through trials that we don't have. You ever been there? When you think you're wise enough to figure out your own situation and you discover really quick that you're not, God says, pray to me and I will give you wisdom. Ask of me and I will give you wisdom. And so we can consider it all joy because we get to grow in maturity. We get to seek wisdom that God has. And then verses 9 through 11, you see this example of rich and poor. And it seems funny, not funny, but it seems like the opposite should be true. You see, the the poor person can exalt in the fact that they have Christ because they don't have anything else. And the rich person needs to be humbled because they know that the resources they have to deal with a trial are not sufficient. Were your own resources sufficient through COVID? They weren't. We need the Lord in those trials. So to grow in likeness, to trust in his wisdom, to rely, whether rich or poor or whatever our lot, to rely on his resources, and then last, you see the crown of life. To live for the reward, the future reward that comes out of whatever junk you're going through. That there's a crown of life that's coming. And this is what you see. Look closer back at those four things. So, those four things are how. Those are why we can count it all joy. To remember, joy isn't like happiness. Joy is something deeper that we can know that God is with us. That he's not only, he's sovereign over these things, but we can experience maturity and blessing and joy out of it. So those are the four things that I would say can, that help us understand that we can consider it all joy when we incur, encounter trials and testing. See, trials and testing are meant to mature us. They're meant to teach us. And in the end, they will bring blessing to us, verse 12. They can do that. They can also do something else, and we'll get to that in a minute. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, anybody could walk up here and give an example of how trials has, in their life, have matured them, challenged them, made them more dependent on the Lord. Any one of you could get up here and share that. For us, uh, a number of years ago, so um, we went to Ethiopia. We had spent five years waiting to get our youngest, Samuel, from Ethiopia. And we thought that would be a two-year process that ended up being a five-year process. And at the end of it, we took our other two kids, our older kids, to Ethiopia. We got to go to the village where Samuel was from, and we got to meet him at the orphanage, and we had a week together. And compared to the second trip, it was glorious. We got to know him. And the way it works in Ethiopia is, is you go on a f- one trip when you adopt, and then about a month later, they finish the visa and medical, and then you get um, a passport for him. So he, when, he, when he touches down on U.S. soil, he would become a U.S. citizen. So we get done with the first trip, and we're thinking, okay, in about a month, we'll come back. Ten days later, they shut down adoption in Ethiopia completely. They halt it. They stop it. And we found out that we were one of three couples, I think, in the, on the planet that had gotten past. We were the furthest along. Other, other, there were two other couples, and we were the furthest along in the process of getting our paperwork. And so our agency kept trying to get his passport over and over again. They couldn't do it. And they finally said, we think you should come to Ethiopia. And we think you should go to immigration and try to help us get a passport so he, we can get him home to you. Because the first trip, he effectively became ours on paper. So second trip, we go, and listen, it, 
I've never felt more helpless in all my life. The first day we go to immigration, the guy looked right at us in an Amharic, which I didn't know, and I'm not sure they wanted to translate it. They said to us, um, he's saying that he doesn't want you here and you need to go home. So that's what, this is the guy that's going to give us a passport. This is the guy who does adoptive kids' passports in Ethiopia. And so we spent three weeks trying to get Samuel home. And I remember every day going to the top of our guest house, which overlooked Addis Ababa, and reading my Bible and crying and feeling more helpless than I've ever been in my life. I'm like, you know, I had these Jason Bourne-like dreams where I go in and I, like, we're totally helpless. And I remember the lowest point in that trial. I remember going on a Sunday morning where we'd just gotten news the previous day that what we thought would be the last straw to get him home was definitely not. It was so bad that the, the U.S. Embassy, they were relying, the U.S. Embassy was relying on me, us, and two other couples to get them information so that they could tell the hundreds of different people who are in the adoptive process in Ethiopia what was going on. We were on the front lines and it wasn't fun. And it was scary. This is a police state. And I remember going to church. There's an evangelical church in Addis and it just so happened that day they were doing worship in English. <laughs> and I remember sitting there trying to sing and this song, which had been out, I don't know, 10 years or so, began to play. He is sovereign over us. You ever heard that song, the worship song? He is sovereign over us. Michael W. Smith. I keep coming back to Michael W. Smith songs. Like, well, the words go something like this. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in the tears. You meet us in our mourning and with a love that casts out fear. You are working in our waiting, sanctifying us, when beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust. Your plans are still to prosper. You have not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood, faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. And I remember trying to sing that song. And as a guy who believes in the doctrines of grace, having trouble breaking down weeping when the words... You are sovereign over us, came. I couldn't sing the rest of the song, but it was such a balm of hope to me to go, you know what, God not only cares, but he's sovereign over this whole situation, and he is good. Listen, God is sovereign. Whatever it is in your life, whatever it has been in your life, he is sovereign in and over your trials. Wherever you're at today, he is sovereign over over those things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 says it this way. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light momentary affliction. Light momentary affliction doesn't feel light, does it? But in view of eternity, it's light momentary affliction. And that's hard for people in the seat, me and you, to go, this doesn't feel light and it doesn't feel momentary. It feels like forever. But in the whole scheme of things, God is in control and he is with you in the fire and the flood. Listen, there's a lot of truths that we could bring out in these verses from verses 3 through 12. Verses 3 through 12. But let me just give you a few thoughts. 
One of the interesting things about this text is it does not deny the presence of trials in our life. It says, when trials come. There's also an interesting piece in this text that talks about doubting. The idea that I need to pray to God for wisdom without doubting but having faith. Here's what it doesn't do. And there's a theology out there that you and I live around that says the reason that you're going through trials and tribulations is because you are doubting and you don't have enough faith. This text actually says the opposite. It says when you have trials, here's how you need to handle it. You need to trust God through the trials that God has given you, that the world is presenting to you. And so it's really important, Christian, believer in Christ, that you know that trials are going to come upon you, and it's not necessarily because you don't have enough faith. And also, as we think about this truth that God is sovereign over our trials, here's the thing that I try to do in my trials. I was trying to do it in Ethiopia. I I try to do it all the time when I have trials. When I have trials, I want to out as fast as possible. How can I fix this problem so I don't have to deal with the discomfort of a mask? or staying at home, or whatever it is. I want comfort. I want to get out of it as fast as possible. But look at what the text says. It says, and let steadfastness have its full effect. Full effect means you've got to wait for it to end. You've got to be okay with walking through it, even though you want it to end. I'm hoping that 2020, this thing ends, though. I'm going to be honest with you. But the full effect means you're waiting for the full effect, and if you cut it short, you won't be steadfast. You, you won't receive endurance and maturity and all these gifts that come out of what you don't want to be in. So there's an honesty in going, hey, I really don't want this trial, Lord. But there's a reality too, isn't there, of God is going to grow me. He's going to refine me through it. Don't short circuit the trial that God has you in. This is what I think we can learn out of it, just like the first century. So what trial does God have you in right now? What trial does God have you in? What sorrow does he have you working through? You need to remember that God is sovereign over your trial. He's there. He's in control. You know, I have a lot of questions about God's sovereignty The fact that he's in control of everything and he's working all things for his glory. I believe that, but when I'm going through it, I'm kind of going, okay, Lord, there's some things that I don't understand and I may never have the answers for, but I can promise you, if you're going through a trial and you think the opposite way and say, God, okay, I know God's loving, but is he sovereign? Think about how terrifying that is. If God's not in control, who is? Who is? It is a comfort and a balm, even through trial, to know that God is over all things, that he's in control even of this. And he can use it to mature me, to give me wisdom, to make me more dependent on him, to make me live for a future reward, the crown of life. You know what the crown of life is? It's that laurel wreath that an athlete is presented at the end of a long race of endurance. And ultimately, for you and me, that's eternal life. The New Testament talks often and frequently about perseverance. Laid up for me is the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. 2 Timothy 4.8, right? So there's a perseverance, a refining that God wants to do. So we need to remember that God is sovereign over our trials. 
But there's another side to this too. When trials come and when testing comes, there's two outcomes. There's one that it leads to maturity and blessing, and there's another one that leads to temptation. Been there in a trial where you're tempted to think wrongly, you're tempted to act wrongly? This is what James goes to next because he knows his audience is going through a lot. And he's saying, God is sovereign over your trials, but remember, there's temptation in your trials. So your second point is this. Realize we are responsible. We are responsible in our temptations. He's sovereign over everything, but we are responsible in our temptations. Look at the text, verse 13 through 15. It says this. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, for he himself tempts no one. So the origin of sin is not with God, it's with us. There's a whole sermon, there's a long theology class we can do about the origin of evil, but James is real particular here to say, hey, don't confuse testing and temptation. Don't confuse those two things. See, what happens in our hearts, in our lives, is we let testing produce temptation. And then look at the second part. So you see the origin of sin. It's not God. God tests. He doesn't tempt. God is perfectly sinless. We are sinful. The problem lies with us. The responsibility lies with us. I don't know about you, but I often go, well, if God wouldn't have done this, then I wouldn't do that. We'd like to justify our sin. You also see the anatomy of sin. Look at the progression. Here's how sin works. We've seen it in the Garden of Eden, and he lays it out for us here again. Look at it. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. Those are fishing terms. we have any fishermen in here? Those are fishing terms, lured, enticed by his own desire. So the picture is the hook. When you, when you go fishing, you don't just throw the hook out with no bait on it and throw it out there. Unless there's like a sea of fish. There's always, I was a youth pastor, so all the kids would always go, yeah, but what about this? There's a hook. What do you put on the hook? You put a worm on the hook so that the fish is enticed by it and desires it. Fish aren't real smart, but they're not going to take the hook by itself. There's a lure. There's an enticement, and it's the worm. And so here's what he's saying here. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed away by his own desire. And so you see deception is the first section. That's what you saw in the Garden of Eden, right? Satan says, is God really good? Are you sure about that? Are you sure about the tree of life? So there's a deception. And then there's desire. And then desire gives way. Look at it. Then desire, when it's conceived, look at the new metaphor. There was a fishing metaphor. Now there's a birthing metaphor conceived. When, sin, when desire has conceived, what does it give birth to? It gives birth to sin. Sin is disobedience. And then sin, when it's fully grown, has a grandchild, death. You see it, the progression, deception, desire, disobedience, death. This is the anatomy of sin. This is how sin works in your life and in my life. Last night, the older kids were watching uh, Star Wars, Revenge of the Sith. If you're a Star Wars fan, that's a hard one to watch. The, where Palpatine is luring Anakin in by deception and saying, Padme can live. 
You come to the dark side, there's powers there, and you see this progression in Anakin. You see him being deceived, you see him giving in to desire, and you see him going to the dark side. Right? If you don't like that one, think about the toddler challenge that some of you I've seen on Facebook have done. The toddler temptation challenge or the testing. If you're not familiar, um, this, is where, this is where parents set up a video, put the kid, the toddler at the table, put their favorite candy in front of them and say, put the favorite candy in front of them and say, well, listen, you can't have it. Mom's got to go outside and I'll be back in a few minutes. And when you get back, <clears throat> when you get back, if you hadn't eat the candy, then you can have it. Mom leaves the room, camera's rolling. The best, the best one is when they conceal the camera. I think some of these toddlers have figured out the phone by this point. Just a side note. But it's amazing to watch these little ones. And what do they do? They look at it, and then they touch it. And they're looking at it. And then they look back. Is mom still looking? Or when is mom coming back, if you're thinking positively here? You coming back? You don't see many that are posted when the kid just takes, Right? You see the ones where they have self-control. But you see the process. You see the process of desire. You can see it all over the kid's face, the big eyes, the looking at it, thinking about eating it, looking back. Is mom here? Is mom watching? Is anybody watching? The process going. Well, as we think about our responsibility in our temptations and sin, John Owen says it this way about sin. We must kill our sin before it kills us. The Bible calls us, Romans 7, really clear to make war with our sin. Make no provision for the flesh, New Testament says. Ed Welch, who's a counselor, said it this way. The only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. You see, sin is like a parasite. Sin is like a parasite. A parasite needs a host what does the parasite do? It feeds on the host. And this is what sin, when it's conceived, does with us. It feeds on the host. It harms us. It harms our soul. It harms our lives. We can't play around with the lion. You know these people that have like tigers and lions for, pet, for pets? This is what we're doing when we play around with sin. We need to kill it. Somebody kill that bird. It's driving me nuts. Anyway. I just see it back and forth. But sin is like a parasite. and We are responsible for it. We're responsible through the work of the Spirit in our life to kill it, to make no provision for the flesh, to put it as far away as we possibly can from us. And yet, here's what we do, especially in trials, especially in temptations, especially in suffering. And I think this is why James goes from trials to temptations. I think especially in those, we are our best defense lawyer. Yeah, but look at all of what I've gone through in my life. Look at all the struggles that I've gone through in my life. This is justified. We are our best defense lawyer with our sin. Now, half of you are looking at the bird. I'm sorry about that. We're our best defense lawyer. So listen, what are the sins in your life that you flirt with? What are the sins in your life that entice you like that hook? The Bible says we need to kill those sins through the power of the Spirit. We also have one another. Hebrews says that we need to every day be around one another because of the deceitfulness of sin in our hearts. We need one another. This is why we make a big deal about community 
in this church. We want to live together. We want to grow together. We want to fight sin together. We need one another. Well, trials, temptations. What I need to know if I'm going through trials and temptations, I need to know who God is. And this is where James goes. He's going to remind the people in his flock, in your trials, in your temptations, as you struggle, in your sorrows, remember who God is. Not only is he sovereign, but here's your third point. Be encouraged. God is always good and gracious. Look at verse 16 through 18. God is always good and gracious. So 16 is kind of linked to 12 through 15 about temptation. Don't be deceived, beloved brothers. Look at 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own, he was brought us forth. Do you notice that phrase? Brought us forth. This is child birthing. This is birth. Like the contrast before, sin brings forth. Now the gospel, the word of truth, that's another phrase for gospel, the gospel brings life, new life, that we should be a kind of first fruit. So I think I see three things here. See three aspects of God's goodness. The first one is that God is unchanging. There's no variation with him. He's the father of lights. Think about lights. Most lights have variation and change, but not the father of lights, not God. He's unchanging. There's no variation with him. Trials come and go. We have all kinds of things that come our way that change. God's unchanging. He is good because he's unchanging. Unlike the turbulence that comes our way, he's unchanging. He's also given us something. He's given us the gospel, the word of truth, and he's brought us forth. He's given us new life. This is the idea of regeneration, that God reaches down and breathes life into us and gives us new life through the gospel. This is the good news of Christ, that Christ died on a cross for your sins and my sins. So it's undeserved. Not only is God good, but he's gracious. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to offer us a path to life, but he does through his son. And also, his goodness is unending. The idea of first fruits is the idea of a foretaste of what's to come, a preview of what's to come. So God's goodness is seen in the fact that he's unchanging, seen in the fact that the gospel is undeserved, and seen in the fact that his love for us and his goodness toward us is unending. It's unending, unlike the person sitting next to you, unlike the people who will let you down all around you. It's unending. Do you see? Do you see his unchanging an unending goodness, an undeserved grace in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your temptations, even when you're falling in them. There is hope, especially when you're giving in to temptation. The, the, uh, usually the, the bent is to be discouraged and depressed, and yet God still offers you hope in the gospel. He still offers you hope even in that time. He is sovereign. We are responsible. He is good. And he is gracious. There's a poem by Robert Browning Hamilton. It goes like this. Maybe you've heard it. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow. 
and ne'er a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Nobody signs up for sorrow. Nobody signs up for suffering. Nobody signs up for temptation and trial. I don't sign up for it. Do you sign up for it? Something you want? And yet when it comes your way and my way because the brokenness of the world or God is testing us, you can know that God is sovereign over it. You can know that he is good in it. And you can know he is gracious. And he's shown you that he is gracious, not with some philosophical idea, but with a person, the person of Jesus Christ, who was a man of sorrows. He bore your sin and my sin, and he took that upon himself, and he died on a tree for you and for me. The best answer to suffering is not a philosophical idea, but it's the person of Jesus. So your takeaway today is this. If Jesus has saved you from your sin, he will see you through your sorrows. If Jesus has saved you from your sins, he will see you, see you through your sorrows. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you're a God who has come near through the person of your son, that the man of sorrows has taken upon sin upon himself. He's taken all these things upon himself that we might have life and has given us his spirit, has left his spirit with us to comfort us, to help us, to walk through temptation and trial, to sanctify us. So Lord, we want to be a people who trust in your sovereignty, who trust in your goodness and in trust in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.